0: Locomotive sipping, drinking, Arizona Mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you
1: Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Sunday, September. Yes, it's still September, September 17th, 2023. Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton here to recap the Singapore Grand Prix, which ended earlier today. I literally just ran into the studio. I literally just stopped watching. Mark, the streak is over. The bid for a perfect season remains unclaimed. Don't feel Bad for Red Bull and Max Verstappen because they're still going to win both championships. They're going to rewrite the record books. But boy, oh boy, what an exciting finish to that race! Unless you were George Russell. Anyways, Hammy, how the heck are you? You I'm, look up. Uh, I'm doing you look great. Relaxed, Summer dude. is
0: almost over. Summer ends Boo. this week, and then we graduate <laughs> into the fall. But I don't think anyone wants to hear about me, and they definitely don't want to hear about uh, <laughs> about about you. Uh, I think they want to hear us talk about a. Could we say the best race in in a couple of years, maybe? And and I think you're right that obviously the, the streak is broken. Like, spoiler alert, Red Bull did not win a race. Red Bull did not podium in this race. And we probably should have seen this coming because they were so bad in practice and they were so bad in qualifying. In fact, a statistic I saw that blew my mind was this was the first Grand Prix since 2008 that Red Bull didn't get at least one of its two cars into Q1 mind wow.
1: blown, wow. And that was seven
0: years before Max Verstappen graduated to the big team. Like eight wow. years before he graduated to the big team. So, and again, we can talk a little bit about maybe some of the struggles that they had, but... All that aside, I think, and I want to be super clear, the reason at least I'm super excited is that one, it was a great race, and I'm not celebrating the fact that Red Bull didn't score a podium and that they didn't score a win and they didn't extend that streak. What I'm excited about is the fact that the conclusion of this race, and I won't kind of get into it too much yet, was a thriller, an absolute thriller. And it felt like over those last 12 laps, it felt like I was watching an IndyCar race, not a Formula One race.
1: It, it, exactly. And it was funny because uh, today's been like one of those crazy days where I've sort of been running around all day and we kind of uh, decided we were planning to record about an hour earlier that we're actually doing it right now. And then I've kind of been going like, can we record a little bit later? It's like, this race is getting really good and I don't want to like, you know, sort of skip ahead if I don't have to. So I was kind of wondering when well, you're like, okay, let's aim for, you know, 315 or whatever it was. I was when you said that, I'm like, something's going to happen because I know he's got like a hard cutoff time so unless you know if it was like one of these sort of the boring races I'm sure he would have said just you know fast forward to like five laps from the end and then you're good sort of thing but boy was that ever thrilling anyways Mark why don't we just talk a little bit quickly about what's happening with Red Bull and why they were so horrible so they themselves were expecting it coming into Singapore this weekend and uh, just from their sim work and you know there's also a little bit of sort of foreshadowing Shadowing because they've done the sim work for Suzuka for the Japanese Grand Prix next week, and they expect the car to be absolutely amazing again. So, from what I understand, is the reason why the car was so terrible was the fact that they've got this large travel rear suspension and the design in the underside of the floor. They had to race the 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 ride height of the car to for you know to avoid the bottoming out and shaving millimeters off of the plank underneath the car, and keeping the car compliant. But in doing so, in in doing so sorry, in doing so third time lucky and raising the ride height they're now putting that car into an aero config that the aerodynamics or into an area where the aerodynamics for that car aren't really designed and are not at their most efficient so it was interesting because I remember watching the race and it was probably about a lap 20 or 25 and Max was saying this thing is like trying to drive on ice so it was uh, obviously very horrible for for both of them but you know that's you you know, that being said, you know, Max still finished top 5 and Sergio still finished in, you know, P8, but more to the point, the 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 bid for a perfect season will have to resume for one of the 10 teams next year.
0: I think he, I think he did a pretty good job of summarizing that, right? Like I think we need to acknowledge that this weekend was absolutely an anomaly for the Red Bull team and I think Mark Hughes over at the race.com a couple of days ago when they were struggling in practice and heading into qualif- qualification kind of established that this was his kind of perspective on, on what was happening. Really, I think if you went to social media, there was two opinions. One opinion was technical directive 018, bit Red Bull hard. And then there was this other theory, which is, hey, they have this long travel, typically softer rear suspension, but because of Mm -hmm. the characteristics of the track in Singapore, they had to raise the back of the car, and that that throws off the downforce that's created underneath the car, and it, it complicates all of the aerodynamic surfaces on the top of the car. So it's probably more the latter, but what's really tricky about this is, and we talked about this so much on Thursday, that the FIA came and clocked down, clamped down on TDO One eight this weekend, which was all about the flexing week. One of the really interesting things about this is that even though, and I'll talk to this in a couple of minutes, uh, in a couple of minutes, even though teams are required to introduce to the FIA and the media, all of the changes that they make to a car going into the race weekend, they didn't have to reveal to the media if they made any changes related to this technical directive. So a ton of teams introduced a ton of changes this weekend, including McLaren. They had a stunning list, although they didn't actually introduce any of those cars to Piastri or update to great dates to Piastri's car. Uh, a lot of teams had a lot of updates this weekend. But if a team did have to respond to technical directive 018, which was all about reducing flexing winginess, uh, we don't know. We'll never know. And and Christian Horner was yeah. asked like, "Hey, was this was this a result? Was your lack of performance related to uh, technical directive 018? He's like, "No. He's like, this is effectively the effectively the same car that we had at Monza, and effectively the same car at at Hungary. And of course, he's going to say that. Uh, but if you're a Red Bull fan, I." I I think you can probably look at this weekend as a weird anomaly because Max Mm -hmm. Verstappen did say, hey, look, we've had the car in the sim and in Japan, it's a monster that we expect it to do really well. But it's so funny, man. It goes back to those comments that Helmut Marko said, which was like, if we can be successful in Singapore, which is going to present the biggest challenge to us in the final eight races of the season, then yeah, maybe we can chase that perfect season. But clearly they were seeing something in the sim coming into this weekend uh, that suggested they were going to struggle and they, they definitely did.
1: Yeah, you know, it's uh and I don't want to take anything away from Red Bull because they they deserve all the props and all the the accolades that they get for the the, the car that they designed and built and the way that uh, that that Max has driven this year and at, and at times Sergio although Max has been on it uh you know pretty much every race. So they deserve every you know all the you know the results and the championships that they're going to come with, you know, come their way at the end of the season or before. But it's just one of those things, right? That that perfect season, you know, McLaren didn't do it in 88 Mercedes hasn't been able to do it in the last decade not a
0: Ferrari that that stole away that perfect season from McLaren in in 88 it was right so McLaren's done this twice broken two perfect seasons
1: (laughs) well then and, and Ferrari themselves when they were dominant 20 years ago in the Schumacher era they couldn't do it either so I don't know you know, one of these days I'm sure somebody will will do it, it maybe that's the, the the point of the the uh you know cost cap and you know regs and things like that just so maybe someone never will it's just I don't know it's one of those things is cool to chase but it's also equally kind of cool to a certain degree that it hasn't been done because now we can do it again next year or whatever so but anyways uh, and and that's not to take away anything from from Red Bull but mark okay where do you want to start now there's a, a ton of Things. Why, why don't we talk about to qualifying? Because that was pretty you know, interesting as well. Seeing like, and you already mentioned it, right? That the the two Red Bull cars didn't even make it into in you know beyond Q two. They didn't make it into the top ten shootout, which was an absolute shocker, right? Yes,
0: it was a shocker. I think uh, I think we probably should start. <laughs> uh,
1: it's one of, those, Mr. One, of days, one of those days. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I think qualifying is a good place to. I, I think qualifying's a good place to start. I I would, and I think it's probably worth uh, kind of acknowledging as well that uh, Lance Stroll had. A very significant impact and a very significant crash. And I think the survival cell did a very good job of, again, potentially mitigating uh, any greater injury that he may have suffered. And for those of you that don't know, he hit a wall, I guess it was probably in Q1. Um, The car was destroyed. Uh, He ultimately didn't compete in the Grand Prix. Mm -hmm. I think the after effects uh, of that impact were enough that it you probably wouldn't have been safe for him to do so. Uh, but I think, like you said, the, the biggest takeaway from qualifying uh, was exactly that, that, you know, even though the Red Bulls were struggling in free practice one and two and three, you always think that, look, they, they've they got some trick, they've got something up their sleeve and they'll come back with a setup for qualifying and, you know, they'll pull that pull out of the hat. But that was absolutely not going to be the case. So I think for me, that was maybe one of the the biggest ones. And I think as well, and I don't know if I did a good enough job talking About this on the Thursday show when we're kind of setting people up for this, that the Grand Prix is by far. Possibly the most physically demanding of any on the calendar for cir- for the drivers. Like it's a longer race; it clocks in at like an hour forty five. It's a very mm-hmm. physically demanding circuit because of the nature of the the tarmac and and the nature of the the layout and things like that. But qualifying is also really demanding for these drivers as well. Again, it's very 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 hot. Um, they're running a much lighter car with a different setup than you would expect to see going into the Grand Prix. But I think for me, yeah, the, the single biggest takeaway was going to be that. But also. It was just that, like Monaco, you, you had to have your eyes at the front of the grid because if somebody, and we talked about this, if somebody other than a Red Bull qualified well, that puts them in a really good position to chase a race win, right, Daley?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And one thing that, uh, you know, great uh, sort of summary there, why this makes it it's such a demanding track, the one factor you did forget is the heat and the humidity as well, because you just, just think about all the different things 100%. that these drivers have to contend with, the heat and humidity as well. I mean, it's just grueling. I have to say, though, now, sat, you know, having sat down and watched the cars around here over the various uh, practice sessions qualifying in the race, that deletion of those four corners at the end of the track because of infrastructure changes. Uh, Changes. I really like this track now. I thought that those I loved four it. corners. I was so happy yeah. about that. Yeah, so happy. Uh, I think that this track now has a, a beautiful flow to it, and I hated those four corners. And I mean, maybe the you know,
0: drivers hated them yeah. too. Like, yeah. I. I just. I don't know what value that they they added. Right. That. They yeah. didn't present overtaking opportunities. It was a it was a grind on the drivers. It was a grind on the tires. It was a grind on the brakes. So maybe for those reasons, it introduces some some additional challenge. But I think having that straight, it helps the drivers keep the tires in a better temperature zone. It cools down the brakes, and it means they can attack more aggressively on the rest of the circuit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, uh, it just, uh, it just has a really nice momentum. It's got a nice flow to it. And we, we did see. I mean, it's a street circuit, so we're not going to see a lot of overtaking just in general. But I felt that uh, we saw quite a bit. (laughs) It was pretty exciting. Um, Okay, let's just talk quickly now about uh, the the first um, or five rows. Anyways, yeah, I mean that that accident that Lance had. I mean, that was pretty scary. I want to come back and talk about Lance. We'll kind of put that on the side burner for now, Uh, you know, we can come back and talk about that a little bit later on. So we had a row one, Carlos Sainz and George Russell. Row two, Charles. Claire and Lando Norris, row three, Lewis Hamilton and Kevin Magnussen. No, you did not hear me incorrectly. Row four, Fernando Alonso and Esteban Ocon and row five, Nico Hülkenberg. No, you didn't hear me incorrectly either. And then finishing in P10, starting in P10, I should say, Liam Lawson in his, what, third Grand Prix now, starting at the top 10. Great for him. Another great weekend. And then two notable drivers outside the top 10, Max Verstappen qualifying in 11th and Sergio Perez in 13th. Mark, your reaction when watching qualifying on Saturday when the two Red Bulls didn't make it because Sergio was obvious he was going to make it because he had like a, you know, he messed up his last hot lap. Max initially puts in a time sufficient enough to get into Q3 just. He just had it on the right side of the line and then got punted out right towards the end there, ironically by uh, you know an Alpha Tauri driver. But uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about uh, th- that. I mean, this is big news because you said this is the first time since 2008 that Red Bull did not put their cars into Q3. Who would have been driving for them in 2008? Mark Webber and David Coulthard? I don't even can't even yeah, where, remember. where
0: was Sebastian Vettel? <laughs> he he was still with Toro Rosso in two thousand eight, right?
1: I think Seb probably would have been a Toro Rosso back in in two thousand and eight. I mean, that's that's fifteen years ago, my friend. That that's pushing my, my memory a little bit, but yeah, David I mean, that Coulthard. Was... I
0: had to look it up. David Coulthard, and Mark Webber, the British driver and the Australian driver lined up yeah. in that Renault V eight powered RB four for the two thousand eight season. Go. Uh, they finished 7th in the World Championship on a whopping 29 points, but even that car managed to make its way into Q1 every race that season.
1: Interesting, interesting. Anyway, so uh, your chance, uh, Mark, to weigh on, on on this, because that really, I think, kind of set the tone for what we were going to see on Sunday. And, you know, my immediate reaction seeing Max lining up where he was, well, okay, this is P11. We've seen Max come from further back, but not at a place like Singapore.
0: Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting too, right, that that we've we've kind of reliable and we see this a lot in the back half of the season where he starts taking penalties as they start cycling in new new major uh, hardware components like a power unit things like that and we'll, we're probably going to see quite a bit of that over the last 7 races and maybe not because ultimately they may not need to exhaust their entire allowance of of components cuz they've done such a good job of managing them so far but i think we've seen that before where hey look you know what maybe not a race win but competing for a podium from P11 on a traditional circuit is probably within the grasp of Max Verstappen. And I I think the complexity of this challenge or this track and the setup issues that they were having were probably enough to prevent that from happening. But ultimately, you know, he finished kind of and we'll get there in a couple of minutes because I don't want to get ahead of myself, but he finished just on the outside looking in from, from a podium. Uh, but ultimately, I think on this track, it was ultimately just going to be too much. And I like that comment that you made about Liam Lawson. And somebody had interviewed him and asked like, hey, have you had a call about the fact that you nipped, basically you pushed, knocked one of the Red Bulls out of <laughs> Q1. He's like, he has like, I haven't had that phone call yet. But and again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but Liam Lawson, third race in that Alpha AlphaTauri, which is by all accounts, a, a beast of a car. To drive to be able to maneuver that into into Q3 or sorry into Q1 and a circuit he's never raced in, right? And you know, he was he was on the F1 TV Pro uh app post-race show, and they were asking him about this track and his mm-hmm. his initial experiences there. He's like, you know, it's grind, and like you said, it's super hot, it's steamy, it's it's humid, it's really, really difficult. But for the fact that he could, in his first weekend at this circuit, put that car into Q1 is, is pretty remarkable. And, and you know what? That, that aside from the fact that he ultimately did, and you know what, I'll kind of spoiler, the fact that he did get into the points in just his third race in this car is going to make things really, really difficult for Alpha Tauri and Christian Horner and Helmut Marko in the offseason because they now have an abundance of drivers and they really only have three available seats for them when you talk about Sergio Perez and Yuki C and Liam slash Daniel Ricciardo's currency. But yeah, a sensational qualifying performance by, by Liam Lawson. And I, I think we should probably speak to the fact that Carlos Sainz Jr as well you know what? ultimately he he scores the poll here and he puts himself in a position to win this race and then it was really just a matter of what kind of racecraft and and what kind of tire strategy can he and mm-hmm. ferrari implement to, to ultimately bring in the race victory but daily maybe before we kind of move on to the race um maybe kind of run down the yeah i think you just did the qualifying classification but any other comments that you have because i'm dying to start talking about the race
1: yeah, I want to start talking about the the, the, the race because you just uh, touched on a point I really wanted to discuss a little bit further. And why don't we take a quick break? We'll come back and we'll pick it up. And I want to specifically talk about the racecraft of Carlos Sainz, especially in those last 10 laps when we had uh, the two uh, Mercedes drivers charging, charging hard, and uh, Carlos uh, playing some uh, pretty interesting games up at the front there. Anyways, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back on the flip side. So don't go away. We will be back in just one moment. All right. Welcome back. Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton breaking down the Singapore Grand Prix. So we've just uh, gone down, set the stage a little bit and let's get into the race itself now, Mark. Pretty exciting opening lap. Pretty good start from both uh, Ferraris, which was interesting too. Because everybody, at least at the front of the pack, was uh, running the medium tires, with the exception of uh, Charles Leclerc, who opted to go for the softs. Anyways, he had a pretty good start. Uh, Both the Ferraris, once the race order kind of settled down a little bit, were running running one and two. Carlos Sainz out uh, front, and then you had uh, Charles Leclerc right uh, behind him. Pretty interesting there, too, because uh, Lewis was kind of forced off uh, the track and had to take to the escape road there, going into turn one. Shoots ahead of Lando Norris, shoots ahead of his teammate, eventually gets. Giving back uh, both uh, positions, and then from there it was uh, it was pretty interesting the way that the the, the race started to develop with uh, with George and Lando and Lewis those top five cars uh, and let, let let's just say that from the start of the race up to the safety car which uh, when um, Logan Sargent put it into the uh, the barrier I don't have the um, the lap chart in front of me I think it was about lap fifteen ish plus or minus fifteen laps <laughs> anyways uh, it was pretty obvious the way that uh, once Logan extracted himself from the barrier, the amount of debris that was just left from his uh, front wing and all the bits that came off that front wing once he got it pointed in the right direction, started heading back to pit lane, it looked like there there was going to be a, a safety car. And, and there was. And... You had to feel kind of bad for Charles Leclerc because Ferrari actually did a pretty bold thing. They they brought both cars in, did the double stack, which appeared to work, and then poor old Charles Leclerc, who was uh, running in P two at that point, ends up uh, coming out. What was it, fifth, sixth? By the time it all sort of sorted itself out, and they got back out on the track, and you know Charles is on the radio asking his engineer like, "What's going on?" And basically said, "We had to hold him for traffic." And they totally did. It was just unfortunate because you had the Mercedes guys coming in. You had the Fernando, the you know the McLarens. Everybody was coming in to change tires, and poor old Charles, uh, it just didn't work out. Anyhow, once uh, they they got going again, and once uh, you know the the race just started, uh, you know in in earnest again, things had kind of like changed around a little bit. <laughs> and I have to admit, Mark, once the safety car, the lights went off, he went back into the pits. When I saw that, it, you know that that Max was running P. Pee- to here we go again, and it wasn't too long before Max was flying through the race order just in the opposite direction that we've become accustomed to over the past couple of years. I mean, that's how uncompetitive that car was. I it, it was just amazing to see Max. I would say he was gobbled up, but he didn't present too much of a challenge for Lando, Lewis, George, etc. The guys that were running behind him who had, uh, you know, fat, you know, faster cars uh, than than the Red Bulls.
0: Yeah, I, I would just add one thing to that Charles Leclerc comment and I think it's I think it became pretty clear during the Grand Prix that Charles Leclerc was never Intended to compete for a race victory, right? That that ultimately he was there to allow a buffer, especially in the early race or in the early phases of the race, to allow Carlos Sainz to get some space between him and the rest of the field. So I, I think ultimately, yeah, and it was interesting as well. You make that point that Charles Leclerc started on the hard, whereas everyone else started on the medium except for Joe and I think Sonoda, who ultimately retired right away. So that was pretty irrelevant. But it was interesting that they started him on the hard because you do that thinking, hey, he's gonna get an ultra-long stint, and then maybe you throw him on the soft so he can attack, attack, attack over the last few stages of the race. But yeah, they put him on that hard, and then they brought him in. Um, they brought him in, or sorry, they started him on the soft. I'm misreading my chart. They started him on the soft <laughs> and then switched him over to to the hard, which was pretty interesting. But I think, again, the the objective there was simply like, hey, utilize him to build a buffer between the rest of the field so Carlos Sainz um, can operate in as much clean air and with as little distraction as 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 possible um and just on that that comment too about sonoda that was obviously unfortunate um that comment mm-hmm. about uh Sar- you know Logan Sargent I think it was lap 19 when he came together with the wall um that was a particularly I would say ill-timed mistake by Logan Sargent because I think yes. that the the greater rumblings within the F1 community now are Williams, I think, had been willing to tolerate a challenging season from Logan because I think their choice was, hey, we want him to be a driver for us at some point. Um, and the choice was, hey, we leave him the junior formulas for 2023 and bring him into 2024, or we allow him to start getting reps in 2023 and he can build on that in 2024. That is more familiar with the calendar and the car and the grip of a Formula One tire and things like that. But I think uh, an unforced error like what we saw on, on lap 19 does not bode well for his future in the sport. And I, I certainly don't have any insider knowledge, but I, I think the no. the number of stories that I'm seeing suggesting that Williams are opening to, they're open to considering other candidates um, is uh, is a little bit alarming. Now, it wasn't the most, I would say, significant unforced error that we saw in the Grand Prix <laughs> today, uh, but no. in terms of deciding the, the professional career of a driver, I think that was pretty consequential.
1: Well, it really begs the question, right, because they let Nikki go last year, and Nikki, I mean, he didn't have some great uh, cars in his time at Williams, and then they decided after two, three seasons, it was time to part ways with Nicholas Latifi and bring in Logan Sargent, and, you know... Look at what Red Bull did, or sorry, not Red Bull. Well, Red Bull. I mean, I guess obviously had the final say. The the whole DeFries, um, you know, saga that we saw in the middle of the summer at uh, AlphaTauri that uh, eventually brought in uh, Danny Ricardo, and then eventually Liam Lawson. Once uh, poor old Dan uh, broke his hand there at uh, at Zandfort. but you know, you're expecting to see progression, right? And you look at the, the, the final race classification, Alex Albon, he just misses out on the points. Uh, he finishes P11, and we've seen some better results from, from Alex. We talked about it uh, at length, I believe. It wasn't this week, but the week before, just the amount of points that Alex Albon has brought home for for Williams this season, where that kind of puts him in with everybody else. P11, the last... by
0: the way, on a track yeah. that requires a significant amount of downforce, is a pretty yeah. good outcome for a car that generates. Rates virtually zero aerodynamic downforce, so I think that yeah, that I yeah. know it's not a points finish, but I think that's a pretty strong result for, uh, for. And of course, he benefited from a lot of DNFs up the field and retirements. But a P eleven is a pretty good finish for Alex Albon and Williams this race.
1: Yeah. Okay, Mark, you already hinted at it, so shall we start setting that table? Because Dude, do it, do let, it. Let, let's let let's let's be fair because like that uh, you know Logan's um, you know incident there that triggered the safety car, then kind of. Um, Let's say, do, do we want to say that it kind of triggered this? What what we can now kind of look back at and say it was a period that was a bit of a slow burn, yeah. Because everybody seemed to be managing their tires. You know that they, they were talking about it on the race commentary as well. we feel like we're building towards something, and then it was very interesting because then a little bit later on the race we have a second virtual safe. Well, we have a virtual safety car, the only one of the front runners that decides to pit for tires is Mercedes, and they do the double stack and it was interesting because like once they I I mean it was a brilliant call because George is on the radio the entire race I want to go for this win let's push for the win let's do this we can do this I mean he was on the race radio quite a bit uh, saying that and then so I thought that was a brilliant gutsy call and I mean ultimately it didn't work for them it didn't work for George get to that in a moment but those are the kind of calls that, uh, that that have made Mercedes so great over the past decade. Those are the same kind of calls that Red Bull makes, and that's what makes them the masters at uh, at these things. I mean, Red Bull kind of really became the masters of the double stack, and they've been really perfected that. So that's the difference that teams like Mercedes and uh, and and Red Bull make that uh, they 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 can pull off. Because as much as Ferrari tried to do it earlier in the race with with uh, you know the double stack with Carlos and Charles didn't quite work out uh, in a, and poor Charles Leclerc really suffered for that but anyways it was a great call and even though they, they ended up uh, I think George ended up about like 10 seconds behind they had pace and it was crazy because they're saying they needed about two seconds per lap to try and catch Lando Norris and then um and, and, and Carlos Sainz. well obviously first of all they had to catch up to Charles Leclerc but did they catch the first Ferrari had to catch the McLaren and then uh, catch uh, Carlos Sainz and <laughs> they they were pretty quick. Once they put that fresh rubber on, they were lapping about a second and a half to two seconds quicker. And that was just me doing some rough, rough math and just watching them as they were going around. It was exciting stuff. And then, Hammy, I'll let you pick it up from here where we start to crescendo because George dispatched Charles Leclerc pretty quickly. So did Lewis. And then from then on, it was pretty much a sprint to the end. Yeah,
0: thanks for teeing that up. and And you're right that it was... It was pretty bold and it was it came during a period of the race that was a little bit and it was so funny too because you and I were texting back and forth and, and at one point I'm like, hey, you're ready to record and you're like, oh, I'm on lap 40. I'm like, oh, he hasn't he hasn't gotten to the good stuff yet. I'm just gonna and, and you are like, oh, you start without me, you start without me. I'm like, no, 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 no. We need to do this together, buddy. Like, we're going yeah. into this together. Um, but obviously, like it it's pretty bold, right? And it's bold for a couple of reasons. One, well, actually it's bold specifically for one reason you gave up track position right it's it's not like there was a significant 15 20 second gap um, behind and in front of you that you were forfeiting track position in the hope that a, a fresh set of tires and again it was they were in a really fortunate position because i think they were the only team on the grid that still had a fresh set of mediums at that point uh, but ultimately they were going to have to attack. So it was bold because it was risky and nothing was was guaranteed whatsoever. And I, I think what we saw over those last... Sixteen laps, and of course, it takes a couple of laps to get those tires up to temperature. And and I, of course, both I think Hamilton and and uh, his teammate George Russell are very very good at extracting maximum value from fresh sets of tires. And of course, that's been the staple of as much as he complains about the the durability of the tires. It's been kind of the staple of Lewis Hamilton's entire career. Uh, but we get into this absolutely sensational finish, which is you have George Russell on a fresh set of mediums followed. And Actually, I shouldn't even say followed closely by Hamilton because when Hamilton came out of the pits, I think he was probably a solid five seconds behind his teammate. But really, it was this sensational finish where you had George Russell hunting down Charles Leclerc, who was in P3, in an effort to go after Lando Norris, who was in a shock P2 uh, after bringing a whole raft of updates to the car, which I hope to comment on a little bit later, in a hope to go and dispatch Carlos Sainz. Because of course, both Carlos Sainz and Lando Norris had been on the same tires since lap 20 when everyone came in because of that that VSC but ultimately you know you saw you saw George Russell go after Charles Leclerc Charles Leclerc Clearly his rear tires were gone and he was sliding around all over the place and, and Russell's able to quickly dispatch him. And then Lewis Hamilton's quickly able to dispatch uh, Charles Leclerc. So suddenly you have you have these two Mercedes running P3 and P4. And this is where I think I have to, and there's kind of some flashbacks to Abu Dhabi 2016 because I think we you and I probably oh, can yeah. both kind of yep. speak to Lewis doing a little bit of this himself. But the the conclusion of this race was very much a master crump. Kind of masterclass in in race management and driving by the race leader and Carlos Sainz because I think he's sitting there and he's very well aware that he has. Uh, He has Lando Norris behind him. And behind Lando Norris is a George Russell who is gunning for the race win on fresh mediums. And then you have Lewis Hamilton behind him also on fresh mediums. And I think he probably acknowledged pretty clearly that, look, if I put a gap between myself and Lando Norris, that's going to give, that's going to give George Russell the opportunity to get DRS and pass Lando Norris. And do I, do I prefer to have a, Lando Norris behind me with DRS, and I can manage that because I have more pace than him— Or do I prefer to have George Russell immediately behind me, who will quickly get DRS and probably dispatch me with fresh tires? So I think what we Mm -hmm. saw Carlos Sainz do, and and again, this was a mastercraft, and even his race engineer, and this is the most shocking thing, because I think his race engineer comes on the radio at one point. It's like, hey, pick up the pace. He's like, no, no, I'm doing this on purpose, which is he he slows down to back up the field. So he he gets Lando Norris into a position where he has DRS, but he's not quick enough. He doesn't have enough pace to get Carlos Sainz. But what it does is it creates this DRS train. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Lewis Hamilton's on the back of George Russell. And as much as we can argue that this was a masterclass in strategy from from uh, from Mercedes as well, being so bold as to double stack on lap 44, it also introduced a complication because they never gave race orders to their two drivers. So all of a sudden you had this DRS train and you had George Russell attacking Lando Norris lap after lap after lap. But simultaneously, you had Lewis, who was clearly getting frustrated with Russell's inability to get past Lando Norris, and Lewis Hamilton starts attacking his teammate, which again, we want to see it. There was no race orders, but you have to think that if Mercedes's ultimate strategy was to put one of their drivers in a position to chase this race victory, it's not helpful when the two of them are squabbling behind the driver in P2, so... I'll kind of tee it up to you, Mark, but we go into lap 62, it's Carlos Sainz, it's Lando Norris, it's George Russell, and, and Lewis Hamilton in this kind of unbreakable DRS train, and then all of a sudden, I pass it over to you.
1: Yeah, they got only what was it about like a a quarter, a third of a lap from the end, and uh, George just uh, he he loses it. He he runs wide into the corner, puts into the Armco barrier. His his day is done at that point. And then uh, Lewis, who who was right on his tail because Lewis was pressuring George. He was uh, he was not uh, giving him uh, too much of a you know too much of a buffer. I mean, he was right there, like uh, under a second as well. So George ends up in the Armco barrier. Lewis, I think. Has one valiant push to try and get close to Lando, but he just kind of like runs out of track. But I mean, you got to go back. I mean, that was just like brilliant driving from 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 Carlos Sainz. And like you say, when his engineer got on the on the radio to tell him that you know your lap times look slow, and 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 Carlos is saying it's on purpose. I was just like, this is brilliant. You know, he's doing the smart smart thing because he's he's he, he's he he knows exactly what's happening behind it, him. Just so and bold, pretty, right? Like to be Carlos Sainz, like
0: i am going to give the driver behind me drs because i'm confident enough in my ability but if he has drs it creates this drs train effect it was incredible and to your point as well that it was Mm -hmm. clearly not something that had been strategized by ferrari that this is something that carlos Sainz was engineering in real time as the race was happening
1: yeah well, that, that's that's the that's the interesting thing about that radio call, right? Because his engineer didn't even know what was going on, and he's and he's obviously getting a little bit worried about like why is Carlos not going, like why is his time so like slower than what they should be? I'm looking at the telemetry. There's nothing wrong with the car. Like like what's going on here? And that's the brilliant thing. And that's why that's such a great comp that you made with Abu Dhabi 2016 when Lewis was. You know, purposely trying to push Nico Rosberg back into Sebastian Vettel and Max Verstappen, who I think both of them were basically trying to keep an arm's length It's like, hey, you know, this is between the two of you. We're kind of staying out of this. But Lewis was substantially like trying to like slow down so much that regardless if Max and, and Seb were trying to back off and stay out of this fight, you know, Lewis was like it was the same thing. But that was so obvious what, what Carlos Sainz did to Today was so subtle great, and that's what great makes point. it great brilliant point. right and, and lewis did the right thing at that time but you know this like i i just i you know I'm just going to put this out there now because you like I just pulled it, pulled up an article from our friend Sam Cooper at uh, Planet F1 and he's got some comments from Charles after the race and uh, I'll just pull up uh, one of the quotes here. So uh, Charles had to say, quote, it means a lot, talking about the, the, the win and his uh, finish, it means a lot, especially with all the hard work that's been done on a high downforce track. It's amazing then, but of course I cannot hide my disappointment because on my side, I wish I had done a better result today, but in the end, it was up to me to do a better job yesterday Day, talking about Saturday qualifying, we know what the it's like this in Singapore. We managed it, we managed the race perfectly. As Carlos managed to have the win, so that is really positive point for this year. After all the hard work, it's a great reward for the hard work of the team. End quote. And uh, you know, I think it's just absolutely fascinating too. And I, I've sort of been thinking about this as we've been you know talking here on the show, Mark. And we we didn't even have a chance to talk about. It. We literally just hit record and started talking about it, but. Now this presents Ferrari with like an... interesting problem, oh, right? Because Charles is... Yes, yes, been, yes, yeah, I'm
0: so glad. Right? Sh- before we actually, before yeah. we go there, I just, because I, I was so happy you're bringing this up and I have it on my notebook. Okay. I just, I, I quickly <laughs> okay. want to wrap up um, kind of the Mercedes piece. So you're right. Okay, bold, please. Double stack, lap 44, puts them in contention for a race win and maybe if the circumstances were different or maybe if Carlos Sainz was pushing harder and he didn't create that DRS train, maybe there would have been an opportunity. A, a couple of quick comments. One, that unforced error as you described it from George Russell. Um- fundamentally and entirely inexcusable for a driver uh mm. in a in a Mercedes race car. And this unfortunately isn't a one time. Like if we flash back to June in the Canadian Grand Prix, once again he was in a podium paying position and he, he hit the curb, went into the wall, basically damaged the car. He managed to get into the pit and come back out, although he ultimately uh I think he ultimately retired. But again, there was another circumstance where an unforced error cost the team uh, a big kind of bag of points, and again, it happened again here. And I think there was a lot of criticism on the web about, hey, it was because Lewis was pushing him. Lewis was pushing him. Lewis was pushing him. Like, if I'm Lewis and I don't have team orders, my job as a racing driver is to go after the car in front of me. And I don't think he was remotely offside. So I, I would put this question to you, my friend. Um, one, should Mercedes have instituted race orders saying that, look, you know what, Lewis, you cannot attack George. Step back and give him, give him the opportunity and the breathing space to go after Lando or alternatively, given the fact that it seemed like Lewis had better pace? Again, George had the better had the better weekend right up until he hit the wall. Um, or two, should they have switched the drivers? You know what? Hey, George, you've been at this for six laps. It looks like Lewis has better pace. You need to switch spots. And maybe he ultimately doesn't acknowledge that and he doesn't do it. It just mm-hmm. creates a kind of a, a groundswell of negativity and, and kind of media kind of craziness but ultimately i I think you have to look it through this lens because there's some what ifs what if they had instituted race kind of uh uh kind of team orders like lewis back off give him space maybe he doesn't commit the error uh maybe he's able to focus on the car in front of him maybe it doesn't matter simply because of the drs train um or alternatively should lewis have been given the opportunity to switch spaces and go after go after lando himself
1: yeah i mean that's one of those calls excuse me, referring to Lewis, I think that's something that, that that Toto has to make that call, right? Because Lewis, and I didn't get a chance to go back and, and watch those last couple of laps in George's uh, car, in Lewis's car, listen to what was going uh, back and forth on the comms, because you know that that's going to be a call that Toto's going to make, right? And especially like the window to either say, you know, move out of the way and let Lewis have a go or just to hold station to have like a, another go, see if you can get around Lando. Like, like that window is going to be pretty, you know, pretty small at that point of the race, right? So it's just interesting too, because if you look at like the the, the drivers in around there, right? Carlos 29, Lando 23, Lewis 38, George 25. I mean, you know, sure you got lewis like right on your gearbox and lewis is pushing because maybe he's trying to like position himself as like hey I'm faster tell george to move over I can take this guy and then I can try and you know get on uh, carlos's gearbox and maybe I can get a shot for the win before this thing is over but regardless I mean you're in a mercedes you have to be basically unflappable. I mean, um, you know, look at all the guys that have been in that car before you. Valtteri Bottas, extremely consistent. Nico Rosberg, extremely consistent. Lewis Hamilton, always consistent, right? So you, you've highlighted two very, you know, like, Highlight-worthy missteps by, by by George Russell, and considering the, the coolness that Lando, you know, raced those last several laps. I mean, he's just under as much pressure as George, if not more, because not only does he have Lewis behind him, he's got George in there as well, and he's got Carlos pushing him into, backing him into those two Mercedes. And and I got to give kudos to, uh, to 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 Lando Norris because as well as that that uh, that th- those last ten laps were. Brilliantly managed by Carlos Sainz, I think that uh, that that Car- sorry Carlos obviously did a great job. Lando did an equally good job because I mean that could have gone horribly wrong. And I think that if it was maybe a driver that had like maybe not quite such a uh, concrete sort of you know stress resistance as as Lando, that could have ended uh, differently. It's just it, it's amazing to me that uh, that George uh, was the one that uh, that 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 ran off there. And I mean this to me doesn't like say okay you know, time to look for a different driver to, uh, you know, to put in that car. But I think if, uh, you know, you're, you're Mercedes, I, I think you take a look as like, George, we need to talk about something here because here are two incidents. We, we, we know you're quick. We know you have all the talent in the world. What can we identify that the next time something like this happens that, you know, we end up with a with, with a better outcome, right? So I, I think it's just something that you just, it's like two really good learning points for a guy that's not a youngish driver but certainly right if not coming into the prime of his career and daily he had three
0: years at williams right like you make these mistakes when you're when you're racing for the grove based outfit like you don't get to make these mistakes that ultimately like this is this is the moment, this is the scenario, these are the circumstances that separate world-class championship caliber Formula 1 drivers from everybody yep. else. That you know, I was kind of making an excuse for George Russell there like oh, you know, he was he was trying to fight Lando and defend Lewis. But yeah, again, you are paid one of you were paid as a kind of world champion caliber formula one driver. Like you should be able to thrive in those situations, not hit a wall and DNF and lose your team 15 points. Like that's totally and fundamentally inexcusable. And again, just the fact that it's the second time that it's happened this season is, is really, really, really worrying, man. Because again, this was possible in terms of pure racing. This was the highlight of the season, this moment, those last few laps, it was sensational. And just to see him, to absolutely fold in the final moments Mm. of that race. And the other consideration too, dude, is like it happened late enough in the race that you probably should have made the decision that, look, you know what? It's not going to happen for me. I've had 14, 12, 14 laps to go at him here. It didn't work out. I'm going to back off and we're going to kind of, we're going to coast home with a really safe P3 and a P4. But to make that mistake in that moment is just absolutely inexcusable. And all of that said, like obviously he was heartbroken. Um, I'd read that in some of the post-race interviews, he was wearing sunglasses to hide his tears. He was clearly... Incredibly upset with himself as he should be, yep. Yep. Uh, but ultimately it's unforgivable, and it comes on the back of a recently announced contract extension. Right, like he's now locked mm. in for twenty four and twenty five, as is Lewis. Uh, but again, this year you've you've begun to see that separation between a former world champion and Lewis, who, despite the fact that he's almost yep. forty, um, and, and George Russell, both in terms of uh, the championship standings, the, the World Drivers Championship standings, and just what we're seeing on the track. But all of that aside, I think we've settled the Mercedes conversation. I'm going to kick it back to you because you were going off on a very, very interesting tangent, which was Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz and and Ferrari's potential new dilemma.
1: And we're going to do that. we got to sneak in one more commercial break. Before we we get out ah, of here, we got shucks. like 10 minutes to wrap shucks. this thing out. So we'll do that in just a second. All right, welcome back. So Mark, we got to make this quick and snappy and get out of here before uh, the lights and the power get turned off and we get pulled out of the studio to go and attend different things that we're both obligated to do after uh, we we finish recording here. Yes, now this is an important conversation and just one final thought on George and uh, and Mercedes. You got to bounce back quick because like you say, he's on the, uh, you know, basically on the tail of the news of a brand new contract extension. And when they were both flying, I kept thinking to myself, if you get these two Mercedes is a good car, boy, is that a scary one-two punch. I'll leave it there. We could pick that up at another point in the future, but this is the juicy one. The time that we have left is with all the ups and downs that we've seen at Ferrari now, and the fact that they've never really, you know, taken the bold step. And we talked about this what six months ago at the beginning of the season that they didn't actually come out and and send say one way or another declare a number one driver for this team. And I think our verdict at the time was, well, that's fine. Then throw it out there to Charles and throw it out there to to Carlos and say, okay, boys, you know, have at it. You know, you you go and show us who the number one driver is. And I I think that. I think if you're Charles, you have to be a little bit kind of worried because. I think that Charles is an absolutely fantastic Formula 1 driver. I've been really really high on Charles ever since he he, he broke into Formula 1 with Sauber and just how competitive he was relatively speaking in a very uncompetitive un- car compared to his teammate Mark, Marcus Ericsson, who subsequently's gone on to do some pretty damn good things in IndyCar, so, which proves, you know, what a good driver that that that, that he is. Um, but for me, I'd have to say the shine, the gloss for Charles Leclerc has kind of come off a little bit. I, I wouldn't say that you know he's a spent force, nothing like that. But if if we're gonna have make those comments about George Russell, like we just did the previous segment, I think it's equally fair to to, to talk ab- about Charles because he finds himself in this awkward spot and in a year where Red Bull. And Max Verstappen and even Sergio Perez, usually for the wrong reasons, have grabbed all the the the, the, the headlines. It's been Carlos that's kind of taken more of the, the the headlines and made some, you know, had the better, brighter, rememberable moments, highlight moments for Ferrari. And I know it's one year, but, you know, Charles, he's 25. And again, he's been around. He's been at Ferrari for a number of years. He's been in Formula One for a number of years. It's just... Uh, is it going to happen for him at Ferrari? Like, where, you know, if it didn't, where else would he go? I think he's kind of locked in there. And if that's the case, what do you do if, if, if you're Charles Leclerc? Because he's not in a funk, but he kind of sort of is. You, you know what I mean? He's got, he finds himself in this weird place where he's, he finds himself not in a shadow, but almost playing second fiddle to the guy that he would consider his best you know, the number two driver in the team. Does that make sense? Yeah, it,
0: it does. And, and I think it's... I think we're probably also both uh, experiencing a little bit of recency bias, right? That if you look at the last two sure, Grand Prix, Carlos Sainz yep, goes yep. out and scores a P3 in Italy at their home Grand Prix, and he scores a race win today in Singapore. well-deserved uh, race win, and he full marks for that. Uh, currently, he sits, I think, 19 points ahead of his teammate, Charles Leclerc, in the World Drivers' Championship. Uh, Charles yep, Leclerc yep. does have three podium finishes this year, but he also has three retirements versus just one retirement for Carlos Sainz. I, I would say this, though, that... I think the Carlos signs that we saw last year for Ferrari, which was hugely inconsistent and just absolutely mm-hmm. associated with unforced errors like talking about unforced errors that it just feels <laughs> like that was that was kind of the story of his season that i think this was. is this yeah. is the carlos signs that ferrari was probably expecting to get that somebody that can compete for podiums um and if in a really strong solid race position kind of retain that position um Charles Leclerc, I I totally hear what you're saying about the shine, right? Like, I think if you flash back to 2019, he makes the transition from Sauber, so he starts his Formula 1 career at Sauber, comes to Ferrari, and he starts winning right away. And of course, there's that immediate conflict with Sebastian Vettel, but it's also clear. In Australia, right? Yeah, and it's it's just clearly abundant to the world that this is going to be the next Ferrari superstar. And of course, in 2019, they get penalized because they were cheating, um, and they take a backseat for a couple of years. Vettel leaves, they bring in Carlos Sainz Jr. Um, And then they kind of went through this rebuilding phase, and then we transitioned into the new regulatory period. But I... I still feel very strongly about both of them. But I think the fact mm-hmm. that Charles Leclerc shone so brightly, so quickly in 2019, and that that shine kind of faded, I think that's as much a byproduct of where Ferrari was in their development cycle as it was where Charles Leclerc was in his personal journey. But that said, this year, Charles Leclerc, Carlos Sainz Jr., they're both driving the exact same car, and Carlos Sainz Jr. currently sits up 19 points on his team. Teammate, Who's clearly the alpha in that team. So I totally hear you. And, and maybe this is ultimately a good situation for Ferrari, right? Which is, look, now we have two drivers that we know can win Grand Prix for this team. And maybe they're feeling pretty good about that.
1: Are are we kind of like experience like a, a sort of a flashback of the past? Because I don't remember back in the day when they had Jean Alesi and Gerhard Berger. If they had like a one and a two, or or if it was kind of like a one A one B kind of thing. I mean, I I think that Charles Leclerc and um, and Carlos Sainz are you know are much better drivers, more talented drivers than like Jean Alesi and Gerhard Berger, who are both very good for their day. But I think these two, the current drivers, are are, are just that much better. But you know, it, it put Charles. in... In, in an interesting, a little bit of an awkward spot, and maybe gives him the chance to refocus. And and thank you for bringing up Carlos's uh, season like that, that brief synopsis summary from last year because he did not have a, a great year. So the term recency bias is uh, you know very very uh, you know it's it's a great term and a great way to frame it, but. You know, it's it's one of those, uh, you know, one of those uh, sort of sayings when it comes back to, like, pro sports, especially at the, the elite level. It's like, well, that's great, Charles, but what have you done for me lately kind of thing, <laughs> right? And... Of course, they haven't had the greatest car, come, you know, to put them in a place to to win uh, races very often in the last couple of years. It's just uh, you know, and and I feel bad for Charles because it seems the times when he has these the, these moments that stand out seem to be. I, I feel like they're amplified like the situation like Monaco just seems to be like one of those places where he's just like smitten by bad luck and I mean it's his home race and everything like that and it just like it's it's, it's almost become like a meme now that it's like oh it's Monaco it's it's gonna be a horrible weekend for Charles Leclerc so I I just hope that uh, you know much like George can can kind of like take his you know bend the situation around and twist it to his vantage. I hope the same for, for Charles Leclerc as well. And I just want to really quickly transition uh, before we we wrap it up here, Mark. Just want to quickly talk about Lance. You know, obviously horrible shunt, and I was so glad to see him moving around in that cockpit uh, as soon as, uh, you know, that stopped right there after his big uh, b- big accident. But well, we should talk about this uh, more on Thursday. But I'm kind of wondering now if, if Lance needs a bit of time away from, from Formula One, you know, like maybe, you know, and and not because of injury. I mean, you never want to see a driver get injured and have to take a break that way, but just... You know, maybe we need to talk about this board length. Is it time for, for Lance to maybe take a, a sabbatical for a year? Anyways, Mark, I want to just run down the uh, the constructors and the um, the uh, driver's championships. I don't know if the dinosaur that is Fantasy's the Formula 1 updated, Fantasy Fantasy's not updated.
0: It's not updated. It's so not. Ah. We'll have to save that for Thursday. <laughs> so I, although everyone's perfectly capable of checking themselves, don't, <laughs> just tune in on Thursday and we'll, we'll have the update for you.
1: Okay, before we wrap it up here, I'll just go down the uh, the Drivers' tra- Championship in the uh, 2023 Formula World Championship season. Max Verstappen, despite the se- uh, setback in Singapore this weekend, still leading the World Championship with 374 points. His teammate Sergio Perez, 223. That puts him in second. Lewis Hamilton is third with 180 points, which is 10 more than Fernando Alonso, who had a race to forget today. He has 170. And then the top five, uh, round the top five, is Carlos science with 142 points moving on over now to the constructors championship red bull still miles ahead literally of everyone else they have 597 leading the constructors championship mercedes 289 ferrari 265 aston martin 217 and boy do they seem like they're fading fast in the constructors and then uh, mclaren rounding out the top five with 139 points All right, Hammy, that's it. Anything you want to add before we go? Yeah, just a couple
0: of things. Uh, One, I I want to get into McLaren a little bit more with you on Thursday. And I have some ideas of how we can do that because I just think Lando Norris, sensational today. Uh, That car, and I want to talk a little bit about this on on Thursday and get a little bit technical. They brought the book when it came to upgrades this weekend. And Piastri didn't get the upgrades. He's going to get them next weekend in in Japan. Um, But he himself had a phenomenal weekend going from P17, uh, on the starting grid to P7 and scoring a bunch of points. And of course, again, he benefited by some uh, unexpected exits from the Grand Prix, but again, a really mm-hmm. great outcome from McLaren, and I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about um, tdo 018 because there's some really interesting stuff there and some really interesting speculation. But I think this race is a good frame of reference for how the cars... Sans flexi wings will function on a high downforce circuit. And next weekend, we're mm-hmm. going to go to Japan, which is a much kind of more, it's not necessarily a super power track in the vein of Austria or Monza or Silverstone, um, but it's definitely a track where flexi wing Functionality would be more applicable and helpful. So I, I think given that this was a, a fairly high down four circuit uh, without a ton of super high speed sectors, I, I think the, that TDO 18 probably would have been as evident here. Although I think people would argue that actually this is probably where you would have seen it the most. I think to get a two race sample on two different circuits will be really, really helpful. But what we saw this weekend was Red Bull, for whatever reason, really struggled. And despite Lance's, you know, his uh, his, his shunt, um, Fernando didn't look great himself in, in any of the sessions, although yeah. I think he put in the third best time in Q2 maybe, but but ultimately it'll be really interesting to see what type of impact TDO 018 has because again, the FIA wouldn't have introduced this if they didn't believe it was having an effect on the racing, so it'll be good to see a two race sample, so yeah, we'll be back Thursday, we've got an action packed show and then we'll be back next weekend because we've got the Japanese Grand Prix which by the way, will be the last time we'll see it in the fall because next year Formula One is finally moving it to the spring. So we'll have a very dry spring Japanese Grand Prix next year.
1: Awesome, and before we go, uh, if you want to give us a follow on X, uh, follow us at Scooter F One Pod. Send us an email at uh, Scooter F One Pod at gmail.com. Got a couple of emails to get into hopefully next weekend. And if you uh, like the show, uh, leave us a rating and a five star review on or a five star rating and a review on Spotify, Apple, etc. Thank you, everyone. Have a great week. We'll be back on Thursday. Bye for now.